As I said, it's been seven long hours since the 38 pistol went off and the two leaders died. And that chaos has captured the city again. Now, New Scenes' Peter Cleveland was just back from covering the People's Temple tragedy in Guyana. He was inside San Francisco City Hall just before 11 o'clock this morning to try to check on the big meter gate trial, the one going on on all the problems over the parking meters in the city. He first had indications then that something sinister seemed to be happening inside. Let's pick up Peter right now in that report. Just before 11 a.m., I walked off the elevator on the second floor of City Hall and was almost knocked over by police rushing into the back door of the mayor's office. The crime was seconds old. I saw the cops, then an ambulance crew, rush in and turn right into the mayor's office. Then came more police and sheriff's deputies. No one knew exactly what was going on. Bit by bit, the picture got clearer. The mayor and supervisor Harvey Milk had been shot, and incredibly, the suspect was former supervisor Dan White. Assemblyman Willie Brown walked by me, dazed. So did Supervisor Carol Ruth Silver. Then, an ashen-faced Supervisor's Board President, Diane Feinstein, made the news official. As president of the board, I'm, 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 as president of the Board of Supervisors, it's my duty to make this announcement. Both Mayor Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk have been shot and killed. The suspect is Supervisor Dan White. Is he in custody? He's not at this time. Thank you very much. No Investigators were everywhere. Fire Chief Andy Casper was also brought to City Hall. No sooner had the all-point bulletin for Dan White's arrest gone out than he came in here at Northern Police Station on Ellis Street just off Van Ness and gave himself up. Within minutes, he was taken to the San Francisco Hall of Justice on Bryant Street. Moscone was wheeled out. I'm told he'd been shot three times from a 38 caliber revolver. Bullets hit him in the side, the shoulder, and the head. Sources say White appeared calm when he surrendered. His wife was driven to Northern Station, then taken to the Hall of Justice. Through our sources, it appears this is how it all happened. White reportedly walked into the mayor's outer office alone, was buzzed through the door, and walked down the long corridor to Moscone's private office and study. It was in the study, I'm told, where the shooting took place. It appears he then raced out a back door and down the corridor toward the supervisor's offices. Once there, I'm told White allegedly called Harvey Milk to his office and shot him in the head. At the Hall of Justice, White was questioned for close to two hours before totally surrounded and almost invisible. He was brought out of the homicide detail and walked to the elevator for the two-story ride to city prison where he remains at this hour. At the Hall of Justice, Peter Cleveland, Channel 7 News scene. People who saw Dan White come out of the mayor's office this morning after the shooting say that he waved and said hi and then walked off down the hall, Harvey Milk on his mind. No one knows the motive yet. If police do, they're simply not talking about it. But police officer friends of Dan White say to News Scene that he was extremely despondent of late. Indications were that the mayor had told him that he was going to reappoint him back to the supervisorial office. That was back last week. And then the mayor pulled back and decided to pick Don Haranzi instead. Reportedly, Harvey Milk had backed Haranzi's pick over White. Well, when White surrendered at San Francisco's Northern Station, where he had served himself, as a police officer, police station officers say that he told them there were nine spent shells in his left coat pocket. 
Along with an undisclosed number of live shells, he also gave them that 38 Smith & Wesson pistol. When White's wife found out about the murder, she called well-known San Francisco criminal lawyer Jim Purcell. He is now White's attorney of record, but he was not there when White was questioned by homicide inspectors. What you just heard was one of the initial reports following the murder of San Francisco Supervisor Harvey Milk and Mayor George Moscone, who were gunned down at City Hall on November 27, 1978. Why am I telling you this story if we already know who committed the murder? Dan White, an ex-police officer, Vietnam veteran, recently resigned supervisor of the board, and colleague of Harvey Milk's, turned himself over just hours after he shot and killed Mayor Moscone and Harvey Milk. I'm Catherine Galvin, true crime enthusiast and psychic medium, and this is Murder and Mediumship. Pride Month has just come to a close, and I'm going to be honest with you, this story was supposed to come out a long time ago. Between moving and audio problems, I couldn't put out one more podcast episode where the audio was off. It was making me crazy. So I've done a lot of upgrading of equipment, a lot of learning about how to use this all better, and I would love to hear leave a couple of reviews, let me know how it sounds, let me know how you're enjoying this podcast and what else I can provide for you. But I'm telling the story of yet another hero to not only the gay pride movement, but to minorities and marginalized groups everywhere. A version of this episode was originally recorded with Patreon members, but following that evening and with the current political climate, the attack on human rights here in the U.S., I really wanted to rewrite this episode a little bit and release it as its own episode. I know that a lot of you are scared right now, and maybe you're not, but if you're celebrating the overturning of Roe versus Wade, you may find yourself incredibly put off by what I'm about to say. And if that's the case, then this just isn't the podcast or the host for you. Harvey Milk fought for political injustice. He represented marginalized communities, and he represented not only the gay community in San Francisco at the time, but every single person he ever came across that he felt was underrepresented. And he fought for them because it was what he felt called to do, not because it would further his political agenda, although he was there to absolutely fight for gay rights. There were no strings attached to his actions outside of bringing fairness and opportunity to those who were not looked at as equals to the white, cisgendered male of conservative politics. Harvey was the very first openly gay man to ever serve in a political position in the United States of America. Harvey's murder was solved, but the murderer didn't really receive a just sentence, nor was the jury that was appointed to his trial done so in a fair manner. So today, about a week after Pride has ended in the United States, I bring you the murder of Harvey Milk. On November 27, 1978, Dan White, an all-American guy, packed his police-issued 38 caliber handgun and some extra ammunition. He made his way down to City Hall in San Francisco, and he climbed into a ground-floor window, knowing full well that he couldn't walk in the front doors through the metal detectors with a loaded weapon. Just days earlier, White had resigned from his position as a Democrat on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors for District 8. District 8 oversaw southeastern neighborhoods of San Francisco, one of which he lived in with his wife and young baby boy. Dan had quit the fire department to work on the board of supervisors, and this is quit the fire department after, I believe a few years prior, had walked away from the police department because he wasn't a good fit. So 
He had left all of this behind, a much better salary, and he seemed to be struggling a little bit financially as well as with his mental health. The final straw for White that drove him to resign seemed to be the failure of Proposition Eight, uh, excuse me, Proposition Six, otherwise known as the Briggs Initiative, to pass because the people largely felt that it would be unconstitutional. Now, if you're scratching your head and wondering what Proposition Six was. It would have mandated that all homosexual teachers had to resign or be fired from their jobs, that they were all ill-equipped to teach the youth of America, and that it put the children in unnecessary risk of molestation, despite the fact that there was no scientific evidence to back any of this up at all. White was the only one of 11 supervisors to vote against a bill that would allow, quote, gays to keep their jobs if they came out of the closet, something they could at the time be fired for. Mayor Moscone happily signed the bill into law. Four days after the proposition failed to go through, White resigned from his post as supervisor to District 8. And he did so without warning, without anyone in place to take over for him. No plans, no preparation, just resigned out of the blue of emotional overwhelm and defeat just about a year after being sworn into his position. So what did that do for Harvey Milk? Dan White and Harvey were sworn in alongside each other, as well as the first Chinese American to serve in politics and the first single mother. His district, along with old friends and colleagues with the police and fire departments, were devastated. They begged him to reconsider and to reassume his post. So 17 days after resigning, White went to the mayor and asked him for his position back, only to find out that it actually wasn't that simple, shocking, to just take the job back. He had to be reappointed by the mayor. And Harvey lobbied against White's reappointment to his position, and it didn't seem that Moscone had planned on reappointing White, as his judgment had been shown to be poor in the way that he abandoned his post, abandoned his people that he was representing. He couldn't be trusted and wasn't fit for the position. Harvey 100% was ecstatic that White had resigned, because now the mayor would be able to appoint someone who would likely shift the balance of power to the board's liberals. White had gone down to City Hall to talk to Moscone about whether the position was his or not, thinking that the mayor would have already let him know if he were in fact being reinstated. So he went down there already miffed, already frustrated, already annoyed, already looking for some answers to things that he knew were not answers he was going to like. From witness testimony, it seemed that the conversation with the mayor turned into a heated argument where White pulled his holstered weapon and shot Moscone in the arm, I believe in the shoulder area. When Moscone fell to the floor, White fired two more bullets into Moscone's head and then went into his office, reloaded with the loose bullets he had dumped into his pocket and called Harvey Milk back to the office. When he talked to Harvey, White states in his confession that Harvey began to smirk. And that sent White over the edge. He describes the feeling as a roaring in his ears, and he shot Harvey Milk five times. The coroner's report later revealed that it appeared the first shot hit Harvey, and he likely fell to the floor. When he fell over, White shot him three more times to ensure that he was dead, then proceeded to stand over him with his gun nearly touching Harvey's head and fired his weapon one more time. White fled City Hall and confessed to his wife, Marianne, exactly what had happened. Together, they decided it would be best if White turned himself in. Meanwhile, at 10.45 in the morning, as the press conference was scheduled to be held by Mayor Moscone, 
telling everyone who was going to be elected to the Board of Supervisors, the president of the Board of Supervisors, Diane Feinstein, came down to where the press had gathered, waiting for the press release. Imagine their shock, though, as Feinstein was not expected to be there, but rather Maya Moscone was anticipated. And the words that came out of Feinstein's mouth next reported that both Supervisor Harvey Milk and Mayor Moscone had been shot and killed, and that the suspect was in fact ex-Supervisor Dan White. And no, Dan was not yet in custody. You can hear the roaring and, and the upset and the confusion as that all unfolds. And it's it's one of those incredible moments in history that I'm so glad we had the ability to have it recorded as a few years prior, it really wouldn't have been. So just to hear that panic and the upset in everyone's voice, I can't even imagine being there on that day. And I really highly recommend the documentary, The Life and Times of Harvey Milk, not just the movie that was made about him, but the documentary. What was so important about Harvey? Well, first, I'd like to briefly pause here to let all of you know that July 13th and 14th, I will be hosting a free two-day webinar about connecting to spirit guides and learning to better communicate with them. Even if you can't make it live, sign up and your email will be added to the list and the replay will be sent directly to you. The link, of course, is in the show notes, as well as the link to book a private reading with me using code CLARITY for 20% off. A lot of people ask how to improve their intuition and how to better connect as a medium or as a psychic. And really, one of the first steps is creating that connection with your guides on the other side so that you can better communicate with them and you can connect your intuition a lot more quickly and with a lot more trust in yourself and what you're doing. So we're going to get back to this very special episode about Harvey Milk. What was so important about him? Harvey was the second son of a Jewish department store owner on Long Island, and he was not really ever someone who was expected to fall into politics. He was an average kid who played sports, made decent grades in school, and he was also an all-American kid. However, in 1944, at only 14 years old, Harvey knew that he wasn't just like all of the other kids, because it was at that age that he already knew he was gay. After graduating from high school on Long Island, he joined the United States Navy and served aboard a submarine rescue ship during the Korean War as a diving officer. He eventually was assigned to San Diego as a diving instructor, but was forced to resign as an L- as excuse me as a lieutenant junior grade in 1955 with another an other than honorable discharge because of his homosexuality. And the difference between an other than honorable and an honorable, I'm not going to really get into it because I don't think it's necessary to, but ultimately, this really took a lot of rights that he had away as a veteran. And I think that's just devastating. I know the law was the law, but the law isn't always right. The law isn't always just. I digress. Returning to New York, he dated on and off, but largely kept his love life separate from his family and professional life. He brushed politics when dating a more conservative Republican who convinced him to work for a conservative uh, Barry Goldwater's campaign in 1964, but politics on his own were pretty far from his scope of desire at this point in his life, though he did remain very aware of and influenced by political ongoings in the country. The bombing of Cambodia by President Nixon sent Harvey Milk over the edge. 
at the time he was working as a researcher for Wall Street and he publicly burned his Bank America card in protest of one of the war's biggest financial backers and subsequently was fired from his investment job, which kind of seemed like one of the best things to ever happen to him because he really allowed himself to travel back and forth between San Francisco and Texas and the East Coast. And he ultimately settled in California in 1972 and opened a camera store with his then lover, Scott Smith, with the very last of their money. So just to paint a picture about what this was like during the 70s, in 1970, oral sex was still illegal, and gay-to-straight arrests surrounding this were 200 to 1. Being openly gay or found out as such meant that you could be kicked out of rental housing and fired from your job. In 1973, Harvey Milk ran for supervisor for the Castro District, where he both lived and owned his film store. The Castro District was an area that had flooded with the homosexual population and became a kind of happy and safer haven for them after World War II. And that sharp increase was actually caused by the amount of service members in the Pacific Northwest who were discharged for being gay and in the military. And when they left the service, they congregated in San Francisco. Honestly, I feel like if I moved out there, I probably wouldn't move back either. But Harvey ran for a board of supervisors position three times before actually securing a spot in 1977. He was sworn in by Mayor George Moscone, someone who showed much respect for all neighborhoods and cultures in San Francisco and someone Harvey Milk would work very close with over the year, the short time that he spent in office. In fact, in 1974, a year after Harvey's first attempt and a few years before securing a supervisory position, Moscone was already helping to overthrow laws that made sodomy illegal and forced one convicted of such charges to have to register as a lifelong sex offender. Harvey was sworn in alongside, like I said earlier, the first single mother to serve, as well as the first Chinese-American, and of course, with Dan White. At their very first meeting as new supervisors, Harvey was bold enough and courageous enough to propose a ban on discriminating against gays in San Francisco. During that meeting, Diane Feinstein was also elected as the president of the board in which Harvey did not vote for her, but for another minority candidate. When given the opportunity to change his vote so that it would fit with everybody else's, he stuck to his convictions as he was always steadfast in them and stuck to his vote for the minority candidate. Harvey Milk was on a mission to change the narrative for minorities and homosexuals in San Francisco and the nation as a whole. During an interview, Harvey stated that the white power establishment, the non-gay, very wealthy establishment, had to deal with him now, and that was an incredible position to be in. White and Milk didn't necessarily agree on very many things, but were able to forge a decent working relationship, maybe even a little bit more than that, as Harvey Milk was invited to White's first son's baptism. They appeared on talk shows together, and Harvey had allegedly told friends of his that he would be able to work with the conservative after all, though I doubt they were really anywhere near being very best of friends. Despite the cordial working relationship, they did continually lock heads over issues that mattered to minorities, something that, again, Milk was very passionate about. Harvey did anything and everything he could to help senior citizens as well, seeing how one day we're all going to be a senior citizen if we're fortunate enough to make it that far and we should be treating them 
with the utmost of respect and the finest of care. He truly put himself out there to help the common person as much as he could, not caring what it would mean for the larger establishment. In fact, it was this type of thinking and his realism about being an openly gay man in political office that led him to record a political will on tape in November of 1977. In it, he named who he believed should be his successor in the event that he was assassinated. And in it, he states that if a bullet should enter my brain, let that bullet destroy every closet door. He wanted so badly for anyone who felt they had to stay in the closet to know that it was okay for them to come out. Harvey would continue to ruffle feathers, of course, not caring whose feathers he was ruffling. There's an anecdote told in the documentary that I mentioned earlier where he's going to meet President Jimmy Carter, and Carter had made it very clear that he didn't want to be photographed with a gay man, so Harvey brought his own photographer with him. He also asked that the president speak out in opposition of the Briggs Initiative. So not only is he already defying the president's wishes about the photographer, he still has enough gumption to ask the president to speak out in opposition of the Briggs Initiative, which he did. But during all of this, White and Harvey continued to butt heads, disagreeing not only on the Briggs Initiative, but later on a facility being constructed in White's district, the Mission District, for juvenile offenders, which White opposed. In June of 1978, White spoke spoke out against the Gay Freedom Day Parade, a crowd that drew between 350,000 and 375,000 people, where Milk openly spoke against Proposition 6. You can see footage in that documentary as well of him riding in the convertible, waving, holding signs, really there connecting with people and showing his support despite the continual death threats and physical threats that he was receiving day in and day out. He still showed up. People told him he didn't have to. Hey, don't go here. Don't make the speech. Don't put your life on the line. And he already, he would just continually say, it's my job to be here. It's my job to show up. So White was beginning to act unusually for himself. And he seemed to be growing increasingly frustrated with the political climate he was immersed in as a supervisor. He seemed to be floundering in the stressful environment and snapped the day that he went to City Hall looking for the mayor. White turned himself in, but if you recall, he once served in the police department. He had friends there, and he even gave his confession to a former colleague and a friend of the family. As if that's not bad enough, the police bandwidth played Danny Boy throughout the night. Prior to the beginning of the trial, prosecution was hopeful, as was the community that rallied behind Harvey. It just seemed so very cut and dry. However, it was clear during jury selection that the trial would not be cut and dry despite such an illicit confession from the one who shot him himself. The jury was stacked in favor of Dan White. The selection excluded gays, minorities, and basically anyone with a political view that differed from White's. The prosecution would establish revenge as the motive behind the murder of both Harvey and the mayor, but the defense was already admitting that this was the case and that this was the motive. When the prosecution played the tape of White's confession, They thought that they were putting the nail in the coffin, so to speak. And California was a death sentence state, except that what they failed to anticipate was that the jury would ultimately be sympathetic to the trauma and stress heard in White's voice. Regardless, he brought the gun through the ground floor window because he knew he couldn't get past the metal detector. 
The defense argued back, though, that many public office holders carried weapons on them for protection, that this wasn't unusual. Except, I mean, come on, he crawled through the window to get past security. I doubt any of them crawled through the window to get around security. So Douglas Schmidt, the defense attorney, argued that the reloading didn't show intent to kill, but was actually a reflex from being a police officer. You know, that very short stint he served. When the weapon is empty, simply reload. And the same explained why he grabbed extra ammunition as well. The goal of the defense was not to prove that White was innocent, but to obtain the lesser charge of manslaughter rather than murder, which would have carried the possibility of the death penalty. His wife also testified to his defense, talking about how much stress he was under and how much he had shifted from who he used to be during his time in office. The defense was more than prepared with the testimony of five psychiatrists who all testified to the the severe depression that White was under, which they partially attributed to his unusually large consumption of junk food, but also to his severely diminished wages and his wife having to work outside of the home to help support their family so that he could work on the board of supervisors. They argued that he killed both Moscone and Milk in the heat of the moment, that his possession of the weapon was purely based on instinct and that he had never actually planned to kill anyone that day. Again, despite the fact that he snuck through an open window to do so, I think it's worth citing here too, or remembering this police department time was pretty short and after leaving the police department, he became a firefighter where he found that he fit in a lot better than he did with the police force and he had friends everywhere in that city. To the shock of San Francisco, after 36 hours of deliberation, the defense got exactly the verdict they asked for. White was convicted of two counts of voluntary manslaughter and two counts of using a weapon in the commission of a crime. The manslaughter charges carried anywhere from two to four years per count, and the weapons charge was an additional two years per count. White was sentenced to seven years and served five and a half of those years before being paroled. When the verdict was read at City Hall, riots erupted. Twelve police cars were burnt at City Hall, doors were smashed in, and windows were busted. Harvey's successor, Supervisor Harry Britt, the one he named in his political will, was actually the one appointed. Supervisor Harry Britt joined demonstrators over the jury's decision. He expressed his disgust that some people in the city were more upset over the rioting and the destruction of physical property than they were that of two irreplaceable lives. He was very clear that the jury would never have made the same decision if the person in commission of the crime had been a black or a gay person. Hours later, dozens of cops unloaded onto Castro Street and stormed the Elephant Walk, a famous and politically active gay bar. They physically assaulted the patrons and caused hundreds of thousands of dollars in damages to the bar on what would have been the day before Harvey's 49th birthday. So essentially, the police officers rioted. They... They rioted against the riots and against Harvey and everything he stood for. White received such a light sentence based on diminished capacity, which became known as the Twinkie defense, that public outcry was incredibly widespread. And following that verdict, California actually revoked diminished capacity as a defense in future cases. Harvey's friends and colleagues called for peaceful marches rather than riots, as Harvey didn't want violence to follow if anything were to happen to him. Thousands upon thousands of people showed up for candlelit marches through San Francisco to honor a man who showed up for the people, maybe not even knowing that while he could have done so much more with more time in office, 
that what he did do would change the trajectory of the lives of so many. He gave others hope. Dan White was released from prison in January of 1984, and during this time that he served in prison, he received absolutely no psychiatric help whatsoever for his depression. The following year, on October 21st, 1985, White took his own life through carbon monoxide poisoning in the garage of his home. While researching the life and death of Harvey Milk, I wondered what he would think of the overturning of Roe versus Wade, or the implications it has on marginalized communities, on the privacy that's being invaded, and what precedent is being set by overturning this precedent. And I'll leave you with this. As always, I'll be back here next week. As for now, be safe, be kind, be loving, and come back for more of Murder and Mediumship. <laughs>